It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's no understatement to say that, once again, the state of the Union is fragile. Political attention has been on Northern Ireland of late, after the PM's visit to Belfast and Sinn Féin's victory in the recent Assembly elections. But today we're briefing you on the situation in Scotland, where engines are revving for IndyRef 2. In Scotland, the push for independence from the rest of the UK has always been bubbling, more intensely really since the referendum in 2014 of course, but this month's local elections gave the Scottish National Party a further boost. And this week, First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has been in America on what some critics are describing as an independence tour. First Minister Sturgeon, we are so deeply honoured that you can join us today. The floor is yours, ma'am. Writing in the Times on Monday, she said she was simply promoting Scotland and strengthening the bonds of friendship we enjoy with the United States. Although she added, my own hope, of course, is that in times to come, Scotland will be representing itself as an independent country. Membership of the European Union and membership of NATO will be cornerstones of an independent Scotland's security policy. Sturgeon has repeatedly said that she wants a second vote on independence before the end of 2023. She's about to become the longest-serving First Minister Scotland's ever had, in office for seven and a half years, with the SNP governing for 15. There's a sense that if it's going to happen, it'll need to happen soon. But the Westminster Conservative government, of course, sees things differently, and an almighty battle is rumbling. This is not the moment to be having another referendum. This is not... This is not the time... This is not the time for yet more delectable disputations about the Constitution. We would proceed with the legislation that is necessary, and that would only happen if it was passed by the Scottish Parliament. And then if he wanted to stop that, it would be the case that he would have to go to the Supreme Court to challenge it. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Callum MacDonald. Today, IndyRef 2 2023 Vision. I am Kieran Andrews and I am the Scottish political editor of The Times. Kieran, let's first of all consider Nicola Sturgeon then. How would you frame her last couple of weeks since the local elections? Is she buzzing from success? I don't know, how would you describe it? 
Well, Nicola Sturgeon has slightly uncharacteristically been on the defensive since the local elections. The SNP did pretty well. They won the election again. They put on seats and increased their number of councillors, increased their vote share. Maybe not quite as much as they would have liked. But what has happened almost straight away is that the Scottish government's, the SNP's domestic record has come back into sharp focus. And she's been under pressure at the Scottish Parliament. Nicola Sturgeon, in an attempt to get out on the front foot and particularly to push the issue of a second independence referendum, has gone to America. A related question from the audience. What policies can the United States adopt to better assist European energy security? Don't re-elect Trump at any point. (laughs) (laughs) That is too light-hearted an answer to that question. She is given a speech to the Brookings Institute in Washington and is meeting with various businesses and congressional leaders. Whether that is enough to shift the dial, push the kind of domestic woes that have dogged her in her administration for the last little while, that really does remain to be seen. But it's definitely an attempt by Nicola Sturgeon to change the kind of public dialogue that's going on in Scotland just now. It's really interesting this, isn't it? Because immediately my mind goes back to COP26 when Nicola Sturgeon obviously was in Glasgow and she was making her presence very well known. She was alongside world leaders, being photographed with President Biden, etc, etc. And I just wonder how significant the visit to America is, whether the speech is the main event or whether actually this is about her rubbing shoulders with world leaders once again. Well, She doesn't seem to have been able to have secured any world leaders to rub shoulders with. I think this is a case, though, of Nicola Sturgeon still trying to push a kind of soft power for Scotland. There's definitely, from within the Scottish government, there's a bit of jealousy about the influence that Ireland has in Washington, the kind of Irish lobby, as you might see it. And there's a thought that there is an opportunity there for there to be greater influence from Americans with Scottish heritage, given how many of them there are. And as, as a Scottish person, if you've ever spoken to anyone from the States, you know, it's, it's, it's a decent chance that you've been told they're half Scottish or a quarter Scottish or there's a granny in there somewhere. But that has never really been harnessed. So I, I suspect there's a bit of that. And again, it's just that attempt to portray Nicola Sturgeon as an international stateswoman, despite the fact the Scottish Parliament has no powers over foreign affairs. Okay, so in terms of the second referendum, where are we at? What is the setup for a potential second independence referendum? And by that, take us back to 2014 and and draw us a bit of a picture from from then until now. So after the 2014 referendum, where 55% of people in Scotland voted to stay part of the United Kingdom, 45% voted for independence, there was an acceptance, actually, in the SNP that independence was not on the agenda straight away. What changed all that was the vote to leave the European Union in 2016, that the Scottish Government thought gave a renewed mandate for a second referendum. And what we've seen since then is Nicola Sturgeon on multiple occasions demand a referendum, say she wants to hold one. It was supposed to be one by the end of 2019, 2020, you know, it's, it's gone on and on and hasn't quite happened because powers over the constitution are reserved to the UK government. They have no appetite to agree to another referendum. Nicola Sturgeon is currently saying that she wants a second referendum to be held before the end of next year. If you speak to 
almost anyone who's being entirely honest with you in the SNP, they will concede that that is incredibly unlikely because the UK government is not going to agree to it. Now, whether that leads to some form of court challenge down the way, the Scottish government has said it's going to bring forward a referendums bill to the Scottish Parliament. And then once that is passed, just try and push on anyway with a referendum. There's so many permutations, but what looks most likely at the moment is that, you know, having not had a second independence referendum next year, the SNP will run into the next general election, pushing very, very hard the idea that Scotland is being denied its democratic right. You know, it's elected a pro-independence majority parliament with the SNP not getting an overall majority, but backed up by the Scottish Greens who do support independence. And they will really use that to try and make some political weather in the next general election. In terms of what you were saying there about if you speak to anyone who who replies honestly from within the SNP that this uh, end of 2023 sort of target looks incredibly unlikely, what is the mood about that? How are the SNP feeling? Is there frustration? Is it a feeling of lethargy? I just wonder if there's that feeling of kind of being a bit stuck. I think being a bit stuck is entirely right. What you get at the moment from the SNP is actually a bit of a sense of boredom. You know, we're on a bit of a constitutional hamster wheel. And that's what I mean about, you know, there's a, a lot of sensible people in the SNP who think that that next general election could be the kind of turning point that makes a difference one way or the other politically. Because at 2024, if that's when the next general election is held, will be 10 years since the last independence referendum. And that's quite a significant staging post in the minds of people. It's not quite a generation that everyone said the, the 2014 vote would be a once-in-a-generation contest, but 10 years on is is quite a big difference. At that point, if the SNP are still doing well, you may just begin to see public support shifting towards another referendum, because that's the other key thing at the moment, is that all the polls show that actually people don't want a referendum just now. They might vote for the SNP for a myriad of reasons, but they're not enthusiastic about having a referendum in the immediate future. And the cost of living crisis and the war in Ukraine have done nothing to shift that gap. In fact, they've probably done the opposite. That's really interesting. So yeah, it's always important to consider the two things. There's support for independence and support for actually having a referendum. And those two things do not always link up. What I always find fascinating is people have been saying for the last seven and a bit years that they quite like the idea of holding a second independence referendum in five years' time. It just feels that five years away feels like quite a safe bet. And I think that just shows people may well agree, and lots of people do agree, with Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish Government that there is a mandate for a second independence referendum. That doesn't necessarily mean they want one in the immediate future. Also, alongside all of this, then, is the question of whether a second referendum can even be held. So you mentioned a moment ago, Kieran, that actually the powers on this are reserved to the UK government. Despite that, there's perhaps a push to bring a referendums bill to the Scottish Parliament. But there is a kind of legal side to all of this, and a recent development in terms of the Scottish government and its, the legal advice that it has. It's been ordered to publish that. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, this is a freedom of information request by the Scotsman newspaper asking for legal advice about a second independence referendum. The Scottish government had batted that away because 
Traditionally, it didn't have to disclose the content of any legal advice. That's something that's consistent across UK and Scottish governments. What's kind of interesting here is the Scottish Information Commissioner, when it got referred to him on appeal, said actually that it is in the public interest to publish at least some of this information. Now, before we all get overexcited, we're not going to get advice from lawyers about whether a referendum is lawful or not. It's likely to be slightly smaller nuggets of information. I understand that one of the things that is likely to be in there is whether or not it is lawful for the Scottish Government to start preparing and making the case for a second referendum and preparing the groundwork for its vision for an independent Scotland, a bit like before the 2014 referendum it published a white paper, which was the Scottish Government's prospectus for an independent Scotland. I suspect we know what the answer to that is going to be, given that there are currently about a dozen civil servants working on that renewed case at the moment. Coming up, you'll have heard of Partygate, and yesterday we talked about Beergate. But listeners outside of Scotland might not have heard of Ferrygate, a storm which is causing choppy waters for the SNP. We'll get into that after this. I'm Matt Chorley. I'm a columnist for The Times and presenter on Times Radio. And we try to cover all the biggest stories, bringing you politics without the boring bits. We can only do this thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. So subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The SNPs had years in power at Holyrood, in fact, 15 of them. And it's, um, it's not all been plain sailing, you might say, <laughs> particularly recently. Let's consider Ferrygate. Thank you very much. Um, let, let's try and, and I, there's a risk of us, you know, being lost at sea here. With, so I'll stop with them um, with very good. There's a lot of ins and outs. There's a lot of back and forth. The first minister is claiming she had no involvement. 
I uh, am responsible ultimately for all decisions that the government takes. The buck stops with me. Heads should roll, frankly. There's been a colossal waste of public money. We still have no ferries. There are multiple failings in the delivery of these two vessels. Can you just give us a bit of a summary of where we're at with Ferrygate? So back in 2014, the run-up to the independence referendum, there was a shipyard in Port Glasgow was going bust, and Alex Salmon negotiated a deal with a Scottish businessman called Jim McCall to buy this shipyard, the Ferguson shipyard, and save it from going out of business. That happened. That was a great big good news story for the Scottish government ahead of the referendum. I call on Derek Mackay, Cabinet Secretary, nine minutes, please. When presented with the prospect of the company entering into administration, we acted quickly and decisively. Our actions have ensured that there will be a tomorrow for Ferguson. Uh, thank you, uh, Fast forward, Alex Hammond has stepped down after losing the referendum. Nicola Sturgeon has taken over and there's a contract to be awarded to build two new ferries to service some of Scotland's islands. This contract, £97 million contract to build the two ferries, ends up going to Ferguson Marine. And here we are, seven years later, the ferries are five years late. They are going to cost more than double the advertised cost. And things keep dripping out about issues that should have been seen with the contract. It's turned out that the Scottish Government's ferry procurement agency warned ministers that there was a problem with the deal but they went ahead and signed it anyway effectively what this has come down to is there's been a whole lot of public money wasted and people on Scotland's islands still don't have the ferries that they actually need it's fair to say this has been far from a success story for the Scottish government it's something that just keeps dogging them because every few days every few weeks something new comes out just to show that something else went wrong behind the scenes in the contractual process with all of this. And it's been incredibly embarrassing for Scottish ministers. Parts of it feel slightly farcical, to be honest, in terms of how the whole thing has been run. Well, I think actually probably the most farcical thing is that to try and keep the shipyard afloat, the Scottish government had to launch one of the ferries now, this was despite the fact it was in no fit state to go in the water. It was nowhere near ready to go. So you had this situation where Nicola Sturgeon turns up at the shipyard to smash the bottle of champagne against the ferry. But because it wasn't ready, it literally had the windows painted onto it to make it look better, make it look like it was in commission. It's the kind of thing that if it was to happen in other countries, we would all be rolling our eyes and saying, imagine that, that would never happen here. And yet here we are. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah, the windows painted on, I think, will live long in the memory. I suppose, to what extent then, is this significant in a kind of broader picture of, of a government that is critics would certainly say floundering you know how does it how is it supposed to run a country when it can't launch a ferry into the sea effectively well i mean that is the the big criticism of the scottish government not just with the ferries but there's problems big problems in education big problems in health service and yet the smp continue to dominate 
there's a, a myriad of reasons for that. One is, frankly, the opposition are pretty poor in Scotland. There's been no positive alternative really put forward to the SNP. There's plenty of criticism of the record, but no one coming forward with a, with a kind of different vision. And of course, the issue of the constitution is a big one because there are now at least kind of 35 to maybe 40% of people in Scotland who will, who will back the SNP because they are the main legitimate vehicle towards independence. But there's no doubt that like any government, to be fair, 15 years in power, they look pretty tired. What about the SNP's defence on all of this then? Are they able to suggest that there are valid reasons for things like Ferrygate, which has become symptomatic in terms of criticism of a wider SNP government problem? But what's the SNP say for themselves? Well, so the, the SNP... It, it leans quite heavily into basically the fact it keeps winning elections and saying that people must be happy. Nicola Sturgeon, whenever she's put under pressure on, on these points, always likes to compare with other parts of the UK. And there's no doubt that on some things around waiting times and other measures that Scotland is doing a bit better than England and Wales. But I suppose the question is then is if that's a limit of, of your ambition. The SNP, what they did really well, particularly between 2007 when they first came to power right through to, I don't know, maybe, maybe 2015, 16, was they had a real reputation for cross-government competence. There weren't any radical changes. They played things quite safely. You might say, looking back now, kind of squandered the opportunity to make big reforms when they were at their peak, but they were seen to be competent. That is kind of falling away now. But Nicola Sturgeon quite often says the SNP often say when they are being criticised by their opponents, and it's a fair point. Say, OK, so what would you do? What would Douglas Ross as a Scottish Conservative leader do differently? What would Anas Sarwar as a Scottish Labour leader do differently? And I think that's the, the, the very fair point that SNP ministers have, have made in the face of quite a number of criticisms. So Ferrygate, among other things, is provoking fresh scrutiny of the SNP, but the party still came first in the local elections earlier this month. The Scottish Conservatives and Scottish Labour, meanwhile, are locked in a battle for second place, with Labour on the up. Now, the UK Labour Party might be feeling reasonably optimistic after those local election results. The comeback might even be on in Scotland. Remember, without winning Scotland, the Labour Party are going to struggle to win a general election. Keir Starmer has said multiple times that the only route to power for Labour is through Scotland. It makes sense. They don't necessarily need to return to having a majority of seats in Scotland as they did before to be as all-powerful, but they definitely need to improve significantly north of the border if they are to have any chance of getting into Downing Street, not least. Because if they don't, it leaves them vulnerable to claims that they'll have to do a deal with the SNP to form a, a government across the UK. Now, Keir Starmer is trying to preempt that because we've known, you know, the, the, the Times reported this last year and we've seen it crop up again since the local elections, that the Conservatives will rule out the same tactic they used very successfully in 2015 to suggest that there will be a pact between Labour and the SNP following a general election. Keir Starmer is on the front foot on that. He is 
been ruling any sort of deal out for, for months and months now. Again, the, the question is, what is Labour going to offer to Scotland? Not just on the constitution, but also on issues like the cost of living. There's no doubt that Labour needs to do better in Scotland if it wants to form a UK government. And I think it's probably fair to say that certainly in the last decade or so, it's not had a, a better opportunity. It's been, it's been a long time since there has been a competent UK leader and a competent Scottish leader of the Labour Party in post at the same time. So it'll be interesting to see what, if any, difference that can make as we move into the next election cycle. While we consider leaders then, let us uh, consider Nicola Sturgeon saying on Loose Women last month that she would step aside if a second independence referendum was lost by the SNP. But you're not a quitter either, are you? You won't give up because... You know, even if you do get your next referendum on, on independence, <laughs> if, if, <laughs> if you lose that one, would you give up then? Would I for personally, the second time? Look, well, I, I'm, I'm not going to engage in the hypotheticals of that because... Yes um, or no? I, I think when, when Scotland next votes on independence, it will vote yes. But uh, going back to... Uh, but if point, it doesn't, would you give it up? Um, I, I suspect I would make way for somebody else, but we're, I'm not contemplating that at the moment. I suppose there's an interesting thought here, which arguably applies to mo- most political parties right now. In terms of leadership, who on earth is lining up to replace these people who are leading now? And I just wonder if that plays on the minds of the SNP at all. The short answer to that is no. Certainly nobody obvious at the moment. Nicola Sturgeon said multiple times that she is in no hurry to depart as First Minister. But once you've made a comment like she did on Loose Women, the rumours will, will start to fly and people will start to speculate. Um, this summer, Nicola Sturgeon will become the longest ever serving First Minister of Scotland. She'll overtake Alex Salmond and, and claim that title. And there's no one really that touches her or gets near her in the, in the SNP. Unless there's a dark horse out there, the problem for the SNP, as is the problem for, for a number of parties, is that if this leader goes, you know, the problem for the SNP is that it's really, really not clear who could take that on. Yeah, understood. Uh, right. Let us kind of consider then, I suppose, um, in terms of, I guess, the wider implications for the union and the constitution. There are lots of constitutional questions buzzing around the UK right now. And I just wonder to what extent the national parties have got a grip on this. I think I'm I'm kind of fascinated by the local election campaigning for the Conservatives in England, where leaflets said, you know, we're the local Conservatives, not the not the Downing Street Conservatives, and trying to trying to inject that level of difference between the two. And I just always think that in a Scottish context, actually there are three levels here. There are the local politicians, there are then the Scottish politicians, and then there are the Westminster politicians as well. So there's actually like a three-tiered system to consider when trying to coalesce around any particular political argument, most pressing of which is is surely independence at the moment. Well, that is true. I suppose what's slightly depressing about all of that is that the big national issues just seem to run over everything. We've just had a council election that Nicola Sturgeon said was all about sending a message to Boris Johnson and renewing a mandate for independence, and that the Scottish Conservatives said was all about saying no to NDRF2, which when you consider it was an election that really should have been about bins and potholes and local services, is is slightly depressing. 
And then increasingly, as I, as I touched upon before with SNP MPs who aren't quite sure what exactly it is they're supposed to be doing when they're sitting in the House of Commons, there is a bit of a, a difficulty there about what exactly is Westminster's role and the UK government's role in Scotland. That's something that Michael Gove and other senior ministers have been trying to work on and trying to really make the pitch for the union, showing that the UK government can work for Scotland. The most obvious is the levelling up fund, whereby UK ministers are effectively bypassing Holyrood so that the Scottish government can't take credit for plans and giving money directly to councils when they've requested it. Whether that improves the UK government's standing in Scotland could be could be absolutely crucial to the to the future of the union. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Callum MacDonald. Our guest today, The Times Scottish political editor, Kieran Andrews. You can find all of Kieran's work at thetimes.co.uk or, of course, you can pick up a paper if you just want that inky feeling on your fingers. The producer was James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. See you tomorrow. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.